We turn in the Word of God to Proverbs 27. Solomon opens this chapter by laying down a general principle which is then worked out in a whole series of situations. And that general principle comes as a warning. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Let another man praise thee, and not thine own mouth, a stranger, and not thine own lips. So on the one hand, he says, do not boast of tomorrow. On the other, do not boast of yourself. So here's this general principle that is laid out in these first two verses. And the reason is because of our own limitations and dependencies. So we're going to look at this chapter under this heading, Salt and Light. The Saviour calls us to be salt and light in the world. So what does that look like in practice? How is it put into practice in a whole range of aspects of our life? Well, the first place, friendships, verses 3 through 10. And there are two extremes, he says, to be avoided. On the one hand, isolation. On the other hand, being naive. So what we need is a heavenly wisdom to guide us even in this difficult uh, aspect of life about relationships. And of course that heavenly wisdom is evidence in the humanity of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. So there are five things at least here that I draw to your attention. First of all, the wrath of fools in verse 3. And what is so shocking here, Solomon describes it in terms of weight, the pressure, the strain, and the difficulties that is created. A stone is heavy, the sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than them both. All of the pressure and the stress that comes even from this one particular person. The second in verse 4 is envy. Wrath is cruel, anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Now you can, to a certain degree, withstand anger, even when it's irrational and overwhelming. But envy, says Solomon, is in the league all of its own. So he's warning us that in this whole area of relationships and friendships, to be alert to the presence of envy. And third, he speaks of real friendships in verses 5 and 6. And he sets out a contrast. The contrast in verse 5 is between the open and the secret, between the rebuke and love. And the contrast in verse 6 is between the friend and the enemy, between wounds and kisses. So the real friend, the real friend, is the one who tells you what you need to know. The real friend may actually wound you, but we need that wounding. Those are the real friends, whereas the other is actually our enemy while pretending to be our friend. And the most awful example in all of this is, of course, 
Judas. In Luke 22, verses 21 and 22, But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. Now the Saviour in verse 21 is taking you back to Psalm 41 verse 9. But then of course we move on down the chapter, verse 47 and 48, and while he yet spake, behold a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve. Now we'll pause there, one of the twelve. Here was one who apparently left all to follow Christ. Here was one who was in the school of Christ for three years. Here was one who went out preaching for Christ. One of the twelve went before them, drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. What does Proverbs say? The kisses of an enemy are deceitful. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? An Old Testament example of this is, of course, Joab, isn't it? Second Samuel in 20, Second Samuel chapter 20 and verse 9. Joab said to Amasa, Art thou in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with the right hand to kiss him. Solomon says to you, there are friendships, and there are real friendships. You need to sift between the true and the false. Fourthly, verse 7, more doesn't mean better. For more doesn't mean better. Look at verse 7. The full soul loatheth on honeycomb, but to the hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. Accumulation of things does not mean equal appreciation of things. In fact, it often leads to indifference, apathy, and monotony. The fact that you may have the ability to buy 10 classic cars and put them all in the same garage doesn't mean that you place the same value on each of them and indeed place a value on all of them that is more or less than something else. Because you will see an 11th classic car which instantly outshines all the other 10 and you must have it. And then eventually when you acquire all the classic cars you can possibly acquire, they're all sitting in the garage doing absolutely no good. And what happens is one becomes indifferent. Everything becomes monotonous. The acquisition of things does not mean that things are better. It just simply means you've got more. And more troubles as well, I suppose. So let's not be fooled by the world's agenda. You must have more in order to be happy. More often leads to indifference, monotony, boredom. And fifthly from verse 8, out of place 
As a bird that wandereth from her nest, so is a man that wandereth from his place. Many are tempted to think somewhere else, anywhere else, is better than where we are. This is what drives so many, I think, of all of the vacations that people have, um, holidays, I think. Somewhere else, somewhere new, more exciting, better. In fact, the most prevalent idea in our culture is probably this. I hate where I am. I want to be there where I'm not. And so people keep moving all the time. And that's in every generation, in every culture. And in the end, what does it show you? That people are actually discontent. People are discontent. Out of place. And the sixth thing, verses 9 and 10, value true friendships. Ointment and perfume rejoice the heart, so doth the sweetness of a man's friend. By hearty counsel, thine own friend, thy father's friend, forsake not, neither go into thy brother's house in the day of thy calamity, for better is a neighbour that is near than a brother far off. Value true friendships. Don't take them for granted. And the true friend is closer than many relatives that we may have. And sometimes our friends are the friends within the family. So he is saying to value true friendship. This is the problem with all these fake friends, you know, on social media. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a joke. You look at somebody's profile and they've got three and a half thousand friends. And they never actually see them because they're all over the planet. But they've got three and a half thousand, some have called more thousands of friends. So it's all a bit of a joke. Absolutely no use to anything. And then they want to post about, well, this is my breakfast. See, I'm sending you a photograph of my breakfast so that my three and a half thousand friends can look at that breakfast on that plate and say, isn't that absolutely wonderful? It's all absolute garbage, isn't it? Here's Solomon's critique. Value the true friends that are close at hand, nearby. You forget about all these others who are nowhere near you and are no good to you when you're in trouble. It's the real friends, close by, who will help you in time of trouble. The word calamity is quite strong. There are times when we are in desperation. Who do you go to? Well, one of your social media friends who lives in, I don't know, the North Pole or whatever, absolutely no good. Friendships. This problematic area of our life in Solomon here, by inspiration, just lays out these very simple, beneficial dimensions of it all. But then secondly, verses 11 through 17. Wisdom. And here he tells you four things about this. And he's covered all this ground. And in a sense, as we get near the end of the chapter, he begins to summarize a lot of things that he's saying. What's the first thing? First one takes you by the, the collar and says to you, don't be a disappointment. My son be wise. Make my heart glad that I may answer him that reproacheth me. Don't turn out to be a disappointment. Secondly, pressing on regardless is foolish. Verse 12. 
A prudent man forsake the evil and hide himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. In other words, the prudent, the wise, they anticipate the dangers that lie ahead. But the simple, they just carry on regardless. And have no mind of all the danger that is about to come their way. So pressing on regardless is foolish. You know, it's like someone on a building site, they lift a ladder and someone says, uh, I wouldn't use that ladder because there's woodworm up one side of it. It's all good. And they put it up against the wall and up they climb. What happens when they're halfway up? The one side gives way. Press on with that. Thirdly, verses 13 and 14, kindness with caution. Take his garment that is surety for a stranger. Take a pledge of him for a strange woman. He that blesseth his friend with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, it shall be counted a curse to him. On the one hand, he says, kindness does not mean taking unnecessary risks. A stranger is the unnecessary risk. Your kindness and being kind, as we're told to be, does not include taking unnecessary risks. On the other hand, kindness requires thoughtfulness. Verse 14. Here's the character that can be somewhat irritating first thing in the morning. You know, the morning person who's chirpy, who's loud, who shouts, Good morning to you! And your eyes are barely open, and uh, you still want to be in bed, sleeping another hour. And this chirpy person, first thing in the morning, becomes a nerve. Of course, in their kindness of trying to sow cheer and goodwill all around them, they're having the opposite effect. So Solomon is saying, kindness requires thoughtfulness. So think about what we're doing. Because not everyone's a morning person, some are night people. And the fourth aspect of wisdom is friendly discussion, verses 15 through 17. Now, academics and philosophers and theologians, they all enjoy a good, robust discussion. And that discussion is helpful. It shapes our thinking. We're confronted with things we never thought of. We're introduced to other things that we should have considered. But Solomon says there's a contrast to this. Nagging simply gets on your nerves in verse 15, a continual dropping in a very rainy day, intentious woman are alike. It gets on your nerves, that constant nagging in your ear. By contrast, it is crucial, he says in verse 16, but sometimes we have to take control of a situation. Whosoever hideth her, hideth the wind, and the ointment of his right hand is beware from sinning. And here's that continual dropping, that nagging person. Solomon says, sometimes you just have to take hold of the situation. Have to do something about it. Verse 16. And all these aspects of life, Solomon is saying, wisdom is of fundamental importance. So there are things that we expect to see of Christians as they grow in wisdom and the knowledge of Christ. We expect to see that wisdom 
evident in their maturity. In all of these situations, an older Christian understands this, takes hold of all of this, follows all of this, as opposed to a younger Christian. And then the third thing, verses 18 through 22, challenges in life. And here there are a number of challenges. First of all, diligence rewarded in verse 18. Whoso keepeth the fig tree shall eat the fruit thereof. So he that waiteth on his master shall be honoured. So as the farmer eats figs from the tree that he looks after, so the servant is rewarded for faithful service. Yes, I know our culture is very hard. I know that economics is very hard. And loyalty is dismissed as unimportant. But it still actually matters. It still matters. So diligence is rewarded. A man's gift maketh room for him, says the Lord in the book of Proverbs. So the one who starts off maybe in a, a, unsure and the position is uncertain, by their labour, by their diligence, they sort of work themselves into that position and it becomes theirs. And secondly, verse 19 Appearances deceive, as in water, face answers to face, so the heart of man to man. In other words, it's not the public face that ultimately matters, it's the heart. As you look at yourself in the mirror, you see the warts and the blemishes and all of the peruca that's there. In other words, don't let the makeup and the Botox and the plastic fool you. Don't be fooled by appearances. Appearances can deceive. And in our culture, with so much plastic surgery and all that's going on, we need to be very careful about appearances. And the third thing in verse 20, unsatisfied. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Hell and destruction. Every day we live, sinners are perishing. And so he says, covetousness is never satisfied. And these two things are obvious. You go to a cemetery to visit a grave, say it's the last, the last row that day, and it's at the end, you come back a week later, and two rows will have been added to that one. Come back six months and there'll be ten rows added. And every time you go back to the, the same cemetery, you see the same grave, you start to count the number of rules that have been added from that one that you visit. Cemeteries constantly receiving the corpses of the departed. And covetousness. Covetousness is a huge engine in our culture. People wanting, 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 wanting. They never seem to have enough. Never seem to be satisfied. Unsatisfied. And fourthly, he says, tested by praise. In verse 21, as the fining pot for silver and the furnace for gold, so is a man to his praise. Solomon here speaks of silver, these precious metals that are put in the fire, and the impurities are burned off. 
And he says, prayers is a test as well. Prayers is a test of your character. In other words, don't inhale flatter. Rather, ask yourself when someone is giving you a compliment or, or it's usually somebody who's trying to be, you know, dishing out the flattery on a huge scale. You ask yourself, what does God think of me? What does God think of me? Yes, we all like compliments. We like them if they're real and genuine. But when there's flattery abroad, that's the time to ask. What's God's favor? What does God think? What does God say? And then moving on to verses 23 to 27. The right use of means. Here Solomon lays out a biblical work ethic that he's referred to all through Proverbs. Let's follow the line of argument. In verse 23, Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks and look well to thy herds. So we must put effort, we must be diligent about our callings. That Protestant, that biblical work ethic and followed by the reason for riches are not forever. And doth the crown endure to every generation. Diligent, even though we know everything is temporary. Verse 25, providence. The hay appeareth, the tender grass showeth itself, and herbs of the mountains are gathered. So providence is all around us. Providence in ordinary things leads to the provision in verse 26. The lambs are for thy clothing, and goats are the price of the field. So there's providence that leads to the provision in our lives. Yes, there's diligence, even though we know that everything is temporary. But the diligence is within the context of providence, because it's out of providence that provision is made for us. And then it finishes with the promise. And thou shalt have goat's milk enough for thy food, for the food of thy household and for the maintenance for thy maidens. The right use of means. Now our culture is against all of this. Our culture wants to subsidize and does subsidize the lazy, those who are squanderers, wasters, the drunkards, the indifferent. Our culture subsidizes all of and there's no bigger example of all that subsidy than when you look at education. But also you look at all of the things that the state does for so many people. Some of it is good. But how much waste there is because they want to subsidize all of the laziness and all of the squandering of resources. The biblical rule is for those who are fit and healthy, you don't work, you don't eat. And that's not the policy that our culture wants to hear. But it's the policy the church states from the word of God. So there's the right and due use of means. Diligence in the sphere of providence. Relying on the Lord for that provision. 
That's why you see when we sit at the table with our knife and fork, we pause and we give thanks. Here's the provision in Providence because of diligence. So God has placed an order finishing with this encouragement. And remember what Proverbs or Psalm 128 says, Psalm 128 says, Thou shalt eat the labour of thine hands. And that, of course, takes you all the way back to Deuteronomy 28, verses 4 and 11. As Tyndale, we coined the word vocation. And you think of Perkins' treatise on vocation. And they turn to the book of Proverbs. They lay out this right use of means of having a vocation and the Lord blessing that vocation and the diligent use of that vocation to put food on the table, clothes upon our back, to pay the bills that arise, but with that complete reliance on providence to govern everything. Sometimes, of course, as you know, in Providence, you know, everybody's going about their work and suddenly there's that huge fall of snow and the whole country grinds to a halt. And people wonder, well, what are we going to do now? Well, if things are laid up in the home, perhaps some fuel for the fire, some a little food in the cupboard, say, well, in Providence, we have something here for the next few days and we'll wait and see what happens. Well, if you tell people, Three days' time, there's going to be six foot of snow. What do they do? The shelves are suddenly robbed of all the food or rather they bad all. And there's panic buying all around the place. And lots and lots of people end up without because a few manage to get in first. But we rely on providence all the time. Because we know that our provision relates directly to claiming the promise of verse 20. Seven. Well, let's come to a couple of points of application. Surely the first one must be, we need to stop loving the world. Verse 12, it says, A prudent man perceiveth the evil, hideth himself, but the simple pass on and repentance. In sin as sinners, we're on the wrong road anyway, and it is folly to continue on the wrong road. Because such a person ignores all the warnings, the roadblocks and barriers, and multitudes stumble on. But I will say this to you, beware of hardness of heart. He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without a remedy. We need to stop loving this world. This world is temporary. Everything we have, we leave behind us. No matter how valuable it is, how useful it may have been, we're not taking it with us. Yes, the Word of God lays down for us here are things we need to know to navigate our way through this world as salt and light. But let's not be in love with the world. And secondly, destruction personified in verse 20. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. The word destruction is a fascinating word. It's Abaddon. 
the Greek version of Apollyon, which you're familiar with if you read Pilgrim's Progress, the description of Satan by Bunyan, Polly Abaddon. But just in case you think maybe that he may have made it up, the Revelation 9 verse 11, they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue, his name is Apollyon. He didn't make it up. Who is the angel of the bottomless pit? Satan is said here to be the angel of the bottomless pit, to have the power of death. And of course, Christ came, according to Hebrews 2.14, to destroy him that had the power of death. Defeated by Christ. So Christ then is our only hope. Our only hope in the face of hell and destruction. The victor over Satan. That's why the Apostle Paul says, tells us in Hebrews 2 and in verse 15, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Christ the victim. Destruction personified. Who hates us most? Satan hates you. Satan is at war with us. We must guard ourselves against Satan. How do we do that? We must first have Christ. We must rely on Christ. Because he has conquered Satan. He is the victor. Well, with these few words, we pray the Lord will bless them.